0: Hello, we're in the second to last instalment of our Good News Shoes series based on Ephesians chapter 6, verse 15. As shoes for your feet put on readiness to share the gospel of peace. And we've been looking at how various themes like holiness and healing relate to sharing the gospel with those around us. And this week we put on Back to the Future Shoes. In the 1985 film, Back to the Future, the main character, Marty McFly, travels in time to 2015 and is amazed at the transformation. We're introduced to hoverboards, but more importantly, to self-lacing shoes. Look at these. Very nice. And today is all about how the gospel brings transformation to our lives now and how we can use this transformation to share the good news of Jesus, With others. And we'll be looking at the letter that Paul sent to the Christians who lived in Rome in 57 AD. We're looking at Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 17. In this passage, Paul, as part of his letter to these Roman Christians, wants us to get that through Jesus, we now live life according to the Spirit. And Paul's aim is to assure the Roman Christians that if they live life according to the Spirit, they are genuine Christians. In particular, I think God teaches us four things about life according to the Spirit that will fuel transformation in our walk with Jesus. So number one, the source of life according to the Spirit. Let's dig into this gorgeous passage. Verses one to four. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What utterly outstanding words. We will never understand just how deserving of condemnation we are, how deserving of being punished for what we do wrong we are. Our complete absence of love for God our selfishness in our actions words and thoughts and just how good God is in comparison how deserving of love he is this kind of being set apart from us the Bible calls his holiness and in the first three chapters of the book of Romans Paul builds a case like a lawsuit against every single person he argues that God's right anger is against people who do blatant forms of evil That God's right anger is against people who look down on those who do blatant forms of evil because actually they do the same. That God's anger is even against Jewish people who thought that they were all in the right with God because historically they were his chosen people. Paul tightens the screw until we get to chapter 3, verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All everyone the terrifying truth is that actually everybody deserves hell so when chapter 8 verse 1 comes into play it should hit us like a brick therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus how how can there possibly be no condemnation for us who so clearly deserve it Paul tells us look at verse 3 the law The series of commands given in the Old Testament couldn't save us. There's never been anyone who's been able to keep them. So Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He came as a human, but he never sinned. He came to be a sin offering. This offering was a sacrifice carried out in the Old Testament. A bull would be killed on behalf of the sins of the people of God. It was to bear the right anger, the wrath of God, so that the people didn't have to. Jesus did the same. Hanging there on the cross, he experienced the full force of God's wrath because he bore our condemnation. And verse 4, this means that because Jesus paid our price, it's as if we fully obeyed God's commands. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So how on earth does this assure me that I'm a genuine Christian? How on earth does this bring transformation? To put it bluntly, because we still sin. We still consider our time to be our time and not God's. We still have flashes of lustful thinking. We still say things designed to justify ourselves and say things designed to make us look good. We don't go out of our way to build others up with our words. We're still greedy for possessions. How do we deal with that? Well, if we're Christians watching today, there is nothing you can do to stop the fact that Jesus died on behalf of your sins on the cross. It's once and for all. It perfectly covers every sin you have done so far and every sin you will ever do. And there are be some beautiful songs that catch the joy of this brilliantly. My sin Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. When you sin, and you will sin, you don't need to be overcome by guilt or by shame. Even that thing you've done again and again and you tell yourself and you tell God that that's the last time you will ever do it. The cross of Christ triumphs over that thing he died for it it's accounted for I'm particularly prone to feeling guilty and ashamed so I hold on to these verses with everything I've got because the sinless savior died my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me And isn't this transformation good news for you too if you don't yet know Jesus? Because believe it or not, people do feel guilty and ashamed. In my own context in the West, our culture's screaming at us. You don't need to feel guilty. You're a good person. I wonder if it's the same in your culture. But the reason my culture has to scream that is because deep down we just don't buy it. I remember in my second year of university, a good friend of mine, not a Christian, and he doesn't even believe actually that anything is really right or wrong. He was weighed down by guilt and it deeply, deeply messed him up for a really long time. If you're watching and you're not yet a Christian, you can be freed of your guilt and shame today. You can be transformed because when you put your trust in Jesus all of it is taken on the cross by him. Go on. Admit that you do sin and are in need of what Jesus did. Believe that Jesus bore it on the cross, died and was raised again to life so that we can be too. Commit to following, enjoying and growing in him for the rest of your life. Click on the new Christian button to see what this might look like. And if we are Christians, Let this add an extra layer of richness to when we talk about Jesus to our friends, family, and co-workers. Next time someone asks you how you're doing or how your weekend was or what you've been up to, say, I'm good, thank you. I was reminded recently that if we're Christians, we don't need to feel guilty anymore. See what comes up. Number two, the future of life according to the Spirit. Chapter 8, verses 5 to 11. Those who live according to the flesh have their mindset and what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the spirit have their mindset and what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Throughout our passage, we see a continual comparison between living according to the flesh and living according to the spirit. According to the flesh, here just means according to our sinful human nature. So, this is a comparison between not being a Christian and being a Christian. And the blunt truth given by these verses is that those who aren't followers of Jesus don't have future life. Verse six, there is death to come. We saw in verse one, there is condemnation to come. For those living according to the flesh, the clock is ticking. They'll rush around looking to squeeze every last drop of fun and interest and enjoyment out of every second. Because this is all that there is. But this isn't all that there is. Verses 10 and 11. If we're followers of Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives in us. When we die, the Spirit will resurrect our bodies and we know this because it happened to Jesus. Future life brings transformation now. The writer C.S. Lewis puts it like this. A continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. Aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. One day you will live in a physical, restored universe where you'll see God face to face and enjoy everything he has made in front of him in a way that pleases him forevermore. The transformation that this brings is that it means you are free. You're free to pour out your time, money, energy, resources into serving Jesus. We're supposed to put all of our eggs in this one basket. This world isn't it? That sucks all of the pressure out of today. You don't have to make the most out of every second in that sense. As a follower of Jesus, there is no FOMO. There is no fear of missing out. When you die and live with God, there will be endless time to enjoy with him and for him. No matter, no, no matter what happens to you, you know where you're going. Are you watching and hurting? Maybe you struggle with mental health or you're single and don't want to be or your marriage is a wreck or you're lonely or you don't have enough money or your family don't understand you. This life is not it. Ask God for a perspective that looks forward to this coming new creation. Read and reread passages of the Bible that talk about it and your life will transform. Number three, the growth Of life according to the Spirit. Verses 12 and 13, therefore brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Assurance cuts both ways. Paul Washer, an American pastor, spoke at a conference for young people a few years back, and he put this in a deliberately shocking way to get people to listen. I want you to know that the greatest heresy in the American evangelical church is that if you pray and ask Jesus Christ to come into your heart, he will definitely come in. Wow. What he's saying is that when we pray and we say that we're followers of Jesus, it's not some magic formula. Just because we remember once praying a prayer where we said we would be followers of Jesus doesn't mean we are followers of Jesus. It's genuinely heartbreaking. And I have seen it a number of times. The heavy and sad truth is that there are people who think that they're Christians that aren't. Maybe that's you if you would call yourself a christian but you look no different to how everyone else lives you think and spend time doing exactly the things that everyone else does verse 5 and you've never really taken seriously the call to a radical commitment to godliness and this passage could come as a warning And please don't get me wrong, though. Um, I'm not saying that you're saved based on what you do. That couldn't be more untrue. We know that. Verses 1 to 4 made that abundantly clear. What I am saying is that if we're Christians, the Holy Spirit comes and lives in us. And if he does, he will start to make us more like Jesus over a period of time. We'll start to put to death the misdeeds of the body. And here's the assurance. If you look at your life and you see that over a period of time you have grown in godliness, growing in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control, you are a Christian. The Holy Spirit lives in you and he doesn't ever leave. Verse 13, you will live. Now, as you put to death sin and replace it with the clothing of Jesus, sometimes you'll do better. And sometimes you'll do worse, but the trajectory will be greater and greater godliness. Like a tree, it starts out as a tiny seed and it ends up beautiful and strong amongst other trees that are also beautiful and strong. And bearing fruit too, planting seeds itself. But in the process of growing, there are seasons of summer and winter Losing leaves, gaining leaves, times when the tree almost looks smaller than it did a few weeks ago. And if that slow trajectory is you, you are a Christian. So press on. There are no shortcuts to this. I urge you, give yourselves to praying, Bible reading, Christian fellowship, worship, self-control, meditation on God's truth how you think, what you think about, why you think will become Jesus-centred. And you please God. Wow, what a thought. Verses seven and eight say, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. So those living according to the spirit do please God. So do you see all of this in yourself, a slow change, becoming more like Jesus? Have you suffered for him? As verse 17 will go on to say, losing friends, family, loved ones for the gospel, giving up good things for the sake of God's kingdom. You are a Christian and God is pleased with you. And while we commit ourselves to this transformation, let's warm ourselves with the wonderful truth found in verse 12 and verse 15 to come. Sin is no longer our master. We don't owe it anything. Often we get to the point, at least I do, where we think sin is irresistible, and that is a lie from Satan. The life transforming news for the Christian is that because we have the spirit living in us, sin is never inevitable for us. True, we will sin, but it's also true that we don't need to sin. I remember just last year when this really clicked for me, knowing that when I'm tempted, I can just say no through the Spirit's power at work in me. I don't need to do it or think it or say it. And as God transforms you, making you more and more like Jesus, do you understand how attractive that is? There are literally millions of moral systems out there, a million different ways to live. The self-help book genre is thriving as people are desperately trying to find something to live for. But people know the real deal when they see it. And the real deal comes from having the Holy Spirit of God that has lived in you since you became a Christian transform you over time into a beautiful Jesus-like human. So commit to growing in godliness in all areas of your life. People will notice. They'll ask questions. You'll be able to say that the reason this happens is because you're living for Jesus. An opportunity then to say more about the good news that we have. Number four, the adoption of life according to the Spirit. Verses 14 to 17 Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Indeed, we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. We don't call God father as a title. This isn't some religious mumbo jumbo. Do you get that? When you became a Christian, God actively adopted you as a son or as a daughter. God didn't have to do it. I wonder if you've ever thought of that. He could have just, I say just, saved us from hell, death, sin, and Satan. He could have just loved us as a good part of his creation. Both of these would, and indeed they did, require infinite mercy. But he also chose to adopt us. Abba is the Aramaic word for father, dad, daddy. Dad was one of the first words I learned and Abba would have been one of the first words that a young Jewish boy or girl would have learned as they associated the male presence that loved and cherished them as Abba. My mate recently became a dad and the intimacy with which he relates to his daughter, holding her tenderly and closely, watching over her, delighting in her, makes this truth mind-blowing. He loves us. He understands us. He takes care of our needs. He gives us good gifts, especially the Holy Spirit. And we might be embarrassed to call God our dad or daddy, but he isn't embarrassed to be called it. Sometimes it's argued that it's irreverent or childish to call God our dad. God is the holy creator of the universe beyond our understanding in majesty and power. Yeah, He is, but that very same God is the one who in this passage tells us we will cry, Abba, Father. It can't be irreverent if it's what he's told us to do. And this utterly transformed transformed me, it'll transform us as well because if we're Christians, God relates to us not as our judge, but as our Father, Have you ever wondered about why in the Lord's Prayer we ask for forgiveness of sins? Hasn't Jesus already won that for us on the cross? Isn't that exactly what we saw in verses one to four? Well, yeah, but now we relate as a child relates to their dad. Verse 15, not as a slave to their slave master. When I sin, I say sorry and turn away from it, not because that is now threatened whether I'm really saved, but because it doesn't please God my Father and I want to please Him. It's changed my life. I've often struggled with assurance, what we're talking about today. Last year I worked with Christian students in a university in England and in my worst moments I measured how good a Christian I was by my performance, how well I gave talks, the number of people I was reading the Bible with, whatever. And when I sinned, I was even tempted to think I could break my relationship with God. But because of Jesus's finished work on the cross, and because God has chosen to adopt me as his son, then my sin will never cause God to judge me. Verse 16, if we understand and experience this relationship with God as his children, then we are Christians. The theologian Dan Kruver perfectly captures the importance of knowing this. Christians who doubt God's love for them will not mobilize for mission unless we know the Father delights in us, even as he delights in Jesus, we will lack the emotional capital necessary to resist complacency and actively engage in missional living. The only people who can truly turn their eyes outward in mission are those who knowingly live within and enjoy the loving gaze of their heavenly father. Broken homes are so common as to be heartbreaking. There are millions of people in the world who simply don't know what it is like to have a good father or a father at all. And maybe that's you watching. I've been blessed with a truly wonderful dad who has modeled to me a glimpse of what the divine father is like. And I really get that that's not everyone. But this passage teaches us that there is a father accessible to everyone through Jesus, and he won't ever leave or be cold or ignore us or make us feel small. All of us want a father like that, and we can have one. And you can have a family. The fact that as Christians, we have the same father means that we are brothers and sisters, a family more fundamental with closer relationships than any biological family. And brothers and sisters, we can invite other people into this. We can invite people to our local church. We can invite those that don't yet know Jesus and get them to be introduced to our Christian friends. We can let them taste The wonderful family on offer through Christ, and let it demonstrate maybe there really is something to this whole Jesus thing after all. We've looked at how, through Jesus, we now have life according to the Holy Spirit, and how this incredible truth assures us that if we live according to the Spirit, we are genuine Christians. So let's put on our back-to-the-future shoes of transformation and experience how life according to the Spirit utterly changes our lives. Let's allow this to fuel us to proclaim the good news of peace to others wherever we go. Amen.